1: Hello, I'm Scott Lipkowitz, and you're listening to New Books in Military History, part of the New Books Network. German Ambassador Ulrich von Brockdorff-Rantzau believed that Germany and the Soviet Union were locked together in a community of fate. Together, Brockdorff-Rantzau thought, the interaction of these two nations would decide the course of history in Europe and beyond. Now, anyone familiar with the history of German-Soviet relations in the 20th century might be inclined to agree with the ambassador's assessment though they might find his use of the word community with all its positive connotations somewhat out of place. For if the Germans and Soviets built any community at all, the evidence suggests it was not built on mutual respect and cooperation. Rather, it was built on hate. Vicious, unbridled, unrelenting hate. Hate, however, can unite as powerfully as it divides. And indeed, it was their mutual hatred of the post-First World War order that brought these natural enemies into an uncharacteristic, but highly consequential, partnership. A partnership that is the subject of military historian Ian Ona Johnson's recent work, Faustian Bargain, the Soviet-German partnership and the origins of the Second World War, published by Oxford University Press. Faustian Bargain is an insightful, incisive, exhaustively researched, and incredibly accessible look at a critical period in the lead up to the Second World War, and I'm honored to have Professor Johnson on the podcast with me today. Ian, welcome to New Books in Military History. Hi, Scott. Thanks for having me. So can you start us off with a, a potted bio and uh, maybe a brief description of how this book came into being? Certainly.
0: So uh, I'm, P- I'm the P.J. Moran Assistant Professor of Military History at the University of Notre Dame. This book emerged from my dissertation, though it's much more substantial in, in scope. In essence I came to this uh, through a, an odd set of questions essentially trying to figure out how Germany had rearmed so quickly. So after the First World War the victorious allies dismantled the vaunted German military stationed inspectors across German territory technically most of these restrictions were still in effect you know into 1933 to 1935 before Hitler officially repudiated the Treaty of Versailles. But by 1936 French military planners were already convinced that Germany had the strongest military in continental Europe. That didn't make sense to me. It seemed like there must be some other element of the story to explain how Germany had rearmed so quickly. It's not possible to build a modern military in a year or two years. And as it turned out, the answer lay in the Soviet Union. Between 1922 and 1933, the the German military and the Soviet state had had an extensive partnership that had enabled Germany to rearm and provided the basis for the arms race that Hitler would begin once he got
1: into power. So uh, again, the, the title, just to remind our listeners, is, is Faustian Bargain, the Soviet-German Partnership and the Origins of the Second World War. And you know, most listeners, I imagine when they hear the phrase Soviet-German partnership, think about the partition of Poland in 1939. And you just alluded to the fact that when you use this phrase in the title, that you're talking about something very different. Can you tell us, you know, in broad terms, what was this partnership and why is it an important factor in the in the origins of the Second World War?
0: So Soviet-German relations had been complicated from the very start, of course. The Germans had resp- been responsible for sending Lenin back uh, into Tsarist Russia to overthrow the state. Once the revolution had succeeded, the Germans negotiated a peace, the, the peace of Brest-Litovsk, where... Although they imposed some pretty harsh terms on the Bolsheviks, they actually began trading. There began to be some political exchange. Ambassadors went back and forth. Of course, that fell apart in the aftermath of the First World War. But it was clear quite quickly that there were certain things that the the Germans and the the Soviets had in common, despite their vast ideological differences. In particular, they were hostile to many elements of the new order that the Allies had constructed after the First World War. The existence of Poland, self-determination more broadly... The, the sort of liberal democratic order embedded in the peace treaties themselves. These were things that both German military leaders and Soviet leaders uh, didn't like so much. So beginning really in the context of the, the war between Poland and the Soviets in 1919 and 1920, they began exchanging intelligence, uh, even selling equipment back and forth. And by 1922, this evolved into a, essentially a pretty broad exchange of information that would eventually become uh, an 11-year long partnership. It would center in its first phase on economic exchange. The Germans would relocate, banned industrial production to the Soviet Union, and eventually began to expand and include direct military cooperation, where German military officials went and set up training facilities, testing grounds, laboratories on Soviet soil. At these bases, essentially, Germans and Soviets trained side by side. They learned how to fly aircraft or drive tanks, Engineers worked side by side, chemical weapons experts tested new technologies of chemical warfare together. Uh, and essentially, the Red Army was able to professionalize and modernize through this partnership, while Germany was
1: able to rearm away from the prying eyes of the victorious Allies. So, we just alluded there a little bit to the ideological opposition, you know, ideologically, politically, economically, socially. Soviets and the aristocratic officer corps in Weimar Germany are natural enemies. But you kind of you end the book actually with this great quote from the German ambassador Brockdorf Ransau who thought of the, and I apologize to all the listeners who speak German, and I apologize to you, Ian, for because you speak German. I'm going to butcher this word, but and you can cor- correct me when I, I butcher it, but uh, he thought of their relationship as a Schicksalgemeinschaft, or community of fate, and I thought that was a really interesting idea because it is so opposed to what we normally think about when we think of Germans and, and the Soviet Union. How did the actual partnership begin? Was it kind of a, a bottom-up thing? You know, was it from interactions in Poland? Was it more like there was sort of you know junior officers leading this push, thinking it was a good idea, or were the main drivers really the the higher ups on on either side?
0: Yeah, good pronunciation first of all. Uh, oh, thank you. Yeah, so the the partnership really begins uh, on the German side with General Hans von Zeit. He's the key figure, so. He was the head of the German Army Command starting in 1920. He had spent quite a bit of time in Russia during the war. He actually spoke Russian, translated Russian medieval poetry in his spare time. Very sophisticated guy. He thought that that Germany was was going to need partners and that the Soviets, despite his hatred for their ideological preferences, were that logical partner, that they shared enough hostility and that perhaps... Working with the Soviets would moderate them if, if he took the lead in doing so. So he reached out and understand this is a moment of incredible chaos in Europe after the First World War. National boundaries forming across Eastern and Central Europe, war on all sides uh, except for maybe Western Europe. Zayt basically reached out through uh, an acquaintance of his, the, the Turkish war criminal Enver Pasha, and put him on a plane essentially to Moscow and said, listen, this is not officially from the German government, but I want you to open up channels to Trotsky, who was then the head of the Red Army. And it took a couple of tries. Pasha ended up in a prison in Lithuania for a bit, but he ended up eventually getting there and essentially beginning uh, telegraphic uh, communications back and forth between the two sides, essentially saying, listen, there are areas for collaboration here. There were also other means of, of communication, but this proved to be the most important, the direct military-to-military connection. And that, that relationship would grow as Zeke essentially began dispatching very quietly, surreptitiously, disguised as tourists, senior German officers often accompanied by German businessmen to Russia to discuss the opening of weapons factories on Soviet soil. So in the first phase, it was very covert, very secretive, really disguised even from the German government at this time, all using black funds that were concealed from a, official state accounting. On the Soviet side, there, there was less political uh, uncertainty because there was a sense that they could absolutely try to overthrow the German government while working with its military. They had no qualms in doing both at the same time. This cooperation with Germany as it got bigger and bigger would become a political football, particularly though, between Trotsky and Stalin. Use this essentially to try in their in their struggle for power in the aftermath of Lenin's death.
1: Now the the this all culminates in the Treaty of Rapallo in 1922. Can you drill down a little deeper into what each side hoped they were going to gain and what did they actually set up? Because I think that's one one of the points you make in the book is that the Rapallo era is is treated by historians, but they look at it as more of, an, they talk about the diplomacy, the administrative aspects, you know, the cultural, social, political implications, but don't really drill down on what actually happened. And you kind of mentioned a little bit of those sites. So what what how did the Rapallo Treaty get formalized? And then what was each side hoping to gain and how did they actually implement the, the treaty?
0: Yeah. So in in the spring of 1922, there was a big financial conference in Rapallo or in, in Genoa, Italy, and the Soviets and Germans were both invited to attend. They essentially snuck off during the negotiations, uh, had a little surreptitious meeting, and agreed to normalize relations. So the actual Treaty of Rapallo is pretty innocuous. It just says, we're going to stand, normalize relations, we're going to uh, exchange ambassadors, begin kind of normal diplomatic exchange. But simultaneously, there were military representatives from both sides who were talking off to the side, and they'd, they'd met repeatedly before Apollo. And essentially, over the course of the next eight months, they would begin formalizing uh, secret agreements Particularly, to begin transferring industrial expertise and munitions production to the Soviet Union, things that the Allies said Germany could not do in Germany, the Germans hoped to do in the Soviet Union. and the Soviets were happy to receive capital, engineering expertise, and all the rest. In its initial phase, essentially uh, there were actually a great de- there's a great deal of ambition embedded in these early talks from the very beginning. Zeke believed that essentially if a new war was going to come and he believed it was likely, that Soviet Russia could serve as essentially a source of depth could prevent Germany from having to fight this two front war that they'd have to, had to endure in the first world war. It could produce weapons for German forces, maybe even collaborate in, uh, in military, uh, military action. So for him, the, the Soviet union in the short term meant a place to train officers, develop new technologies, work on tactics, do all the stuff he couldn't do in Germany that the allies prevented him from doing. But in the long run, there might be greater gains to be made. For the Soviets, they saw a partnership with Germany as essential because they'd essentially failed to bring about world revolution in the immediate aftermath of the October Revolution. They hoped there would be revolutions all over the place, none of which had come to pass. What they needed was capital and access to the advanced economies of the West in order to essentially make uh, the factories and build the working class necessary for the Soviet Union survival. The working class was tiny after the revolution, only a few million in a country over 100 million in Soviet controlled territory. So alliance with the Germans meant industrialization. It meant modernizing the Red Army, which was in disastrous state after uh, after the Civil War. They had almost no working aircraft. The only tanks were being used to plow fields in Ukraine. Most of the soldiers didn't have uniforms. So the Germans were considered the best soldiers, and they were seen as the the likely uh, or very helpful in training, modernizing, and professionalizing. That, those were the ambitions embedded in this these early talks in 1922
1: you kind of break with other treatments of this subject because you place an emphasis which you hinted at a little bit there on the technological component of the Rapallo relationship why do you re-center our focus on the technology and what did that actually entail you know what were they tr- what were they developing
0: sure so it's been known really since the end of the Second World War that there'd been this collaboration in the 20s uh, into the early 30s, but the main sources that were available at that juncture were diplomatic uh, documents that were had been published in the United States and Great Britain after the war about Germany's diplomacy in the interwar period. That was really the main source. And they don't talk about what happens at the bases, naturally, because uh, these diplomats had very little to do with the, the daily operation of these facilities. So what was new about my project uh, and has been done a little bit in German and Russian, but very little in English, was to actually try to figure out what what was being done at these various secret facilities. There were four large ones uh, that were shared military bases where training and technological development were going on and a network of factories. What actually was taking place there? That was one of the key questions I wanted to ask. So I went to the German corporations that had been involved in cooperation. I went through their archives, which really had not been been done before. And then I also went in Russia to the local archives near where these bases had been. And I tried to dig up, you know, blueprints, uh, notes on, on engineering. In fact, I was happy to discover that many secret police documents had ended up in these local archives, but uh, were not available in Moscow, some of which were pretty stunning. And so between those, I was able to reconstruct daily life uh, in at these facilities and exactly what sort of developments were taking place. And this led me to the conclusion that, that I think, had been missed in previous parts of the literature, which is that so much of this work was about rearming for both the Soviets and the Germans. This was about getting access to new technologies that were banned by by the Allies in Germany that the Soviets didn't have access to otherwise. For them, the engineering work being done was enormously significant. So the, the major German firms that were cooperating, and there were over 250 that were involved in some way, shape, and form with this. We're talking about every major industrial firm in Germany was surreptitiously working at these facilities. They were sending their entire bureaus that were working you know, quietly on, on tank design or aircraft design, particularly tanks, just to live in the Soviet Union for years because it was the only place they could build prototypes, test them, develop them, modify them. And of course, the Soviets were getting access to that technology as well. And as a result, this, this technological component becomes enormously significant in laying the foundations for the arms race that Hitler really accelerated when he came to power. Uh, I argue that every uh, every battle tank that Germany possessed, the Panzers one through four, was essentially derived from work conducted in the Soviet Union. That I, I found that seven of the eight aircraft designers that were operating in Germany when the Second World War began had been essentially testing all of their prototypes in Russia, combat prototypes. So without this cooperation, the Germans would have been essentially incapable of building tanks or planes for the war, at least for a, a number of years. This enormously accelerated really allowed them to keep pace with British and French developments at the same time. And for the Soviets, getting access to all of this advanced German technology was uh, was staggeringly significant. I mean, the the Imperial Russian Army hadn't built a tank. It had built only a a handful of planes. Uh, It hadn't managed to even put machine guns that could really operate on planes in their aircraft during the First World War. By the time they're done working with the Germans, the Soviets are building some of the best aircraft prototypes in the world, borrowing heavily from German firms and sometimes building stuff under license with German firms, including engines. Uh, They were building some of the uh, very modern tank designs, borrowing extensively from the German prototypes they had access to, Essentially, by 1939, the Soviets had the largest military industrial capacity in the world. And that was because the Germans had been giving them the capital, the engineering expertise, uh, and allowing Soviets to study and work in German facilities in the USSR. So it's this technological component that really makes intelligible, it makes intelligible appeasement, the arms race, uh, all of these elements that eventually lead us to the moment in September 1939, where we have the Second World War return in Europe.
1: Now, I like too that you, you know, the technology is the component, but you also make a very clear argument that the technology is also a fulcrum, which all these other factors kind of revolve around, or that there are these other second orders of order effects to this technological partnership, you know, because obviously you're not just working on tanks, you're interacting with Soviet uh, and, you know, the Soviets and Germans are interacting. They're learning about each other, learning from each other. It's probably a fair deal of industrial and military espionage going on mm-hmm. at the same time. Can you speak a little bit about these second order effects? What impact did it have on the culture, the the way that the militaries were organized, uh, mm-hmm. et cetera, those sorts of things?
0: Absolutely. So, yes, espionage was was widespread. It's It's important to remember these sides did not trust each other. The German military had actually gotten more aristocratic after the First World War because Hans von Zeich got to personally select all 4,000 officers that remained. So they tended to be particularly aristocratic, and they're dealing with revolutionaries. I think it's really funny, in the the Russian correspondence, they always call the the Germans uh, drusia, friends, but in quotation marks. The entire period, (laughs) 11 years of working together. And they have these bizarre rules where they're not supposed to drink with each other or fraternize off-duty. These get violated pretty quickly. But Clearly they don't trust each other and there's all sorts of spying going on, parts being stolen, particularly from German engineering uh, firms. They'd set up warehouses. The Soviets would break into them all the time. So there's that, that component, uh, where the, the Soviets are borrowing much more than they're actually being given access to officially by the Germans. In fact, there's a, a lawsuit where a German engineer, to the embarrassment of the German government, sued the Soviet Union for stealing his technology at one of the sacred facilities, which was a great embarrassment. Um. But there was a lot else going on. And the Soviets in particular, they thought very, very highly of German military expertise. They'd faced them and and lost fighting them in the First World War. And so this period of cooperation, especially when so many senior Soviet uh, officers were going to study in Germany, sometimes for years at, at end, they essentially began rebuilding the Red Army along German lines. They reorganized their training facilities, many of which had German instructors. They reorganized their general staff copying the German line. They reorganized their technical and logistical apparatus along German lines. So there was enormous borrowing there. And for the Germans, the Soviets uh, and conversation with them, the Soviets really had wiped the the slate blank in some some respects with military doctrine. You had all of these incredibly young officers like Mikhail Tukachevsky, who was in his 20s when he becomes one of the senior generals of the Red Army, who are very innovative, very open, very uh, flexible. And the Germans engaged in in conversation, read what they were writing, uh, and and it, this helped to to form and and drive uh, some changes in German doctrine. So both sides benefited uh, in in ways perhaps the other side did not intend for them to do.
1: Now, obviously, everything you just described clearly violates the Treaty of Versailles. And one would imagine both the Germans and the Soviets went to great lengths to conceal what was going on were they successful in their efforts to keep their arrangements secret? And if not, what were the political and diplomatic ramifications?
0: Yes. So they're, you know, the the German military is trying to keep all of its activities in the USSR secret. They're clearly in violation of international law and German law. And until 1926, they mostly succeed. They're doing things like putting, you know, welding tractor plows on the tanks in case anyone lifts the hood or, or whatever. But uh, you know, uh, maybe someone would have noticed there's a 37 millimeter cannon mounted on it. But
1: in any yeah, case, that's, until that's how you plow the field. You, you put <laughs> a, a 37 millimeter shell through it.
0: It, it sure would do something. Uh, yeah. So th- there are these various efforts to conceal uh, their activities, but they become they get blown open in 1926. Essentially, some members of the German government begin finding out about this. They leak the documents to a British journalist who's writing for the Manchester Guardian. There's a a vote of no confidence in the German government. There's this huge scandal. uh, And essentially, the Soviets are really embarrassed. They don't want any of these revelations that they're essentially helping to arm and and work with these arch reactionaries. They're very embarrassed. So essentially, the Germans and the Soviets sit down and the Soviets say, your your government and your military are not on the same page. They need to be if we're going to continue our, our partnership. This bizarre moment where they're sitting down with this democratic regime and saying, You need to, you know, know, function better. The civil military relation (laughs) needs to be, uh, relationship needs to be improved here. And the Germans, in fact, do this. So the dominant figure in the cabinet this time is Gustav Stresemann, who's the foreign minister. He essentially says, all right, this has been very embarrassing. We're going to sit down. We're going to review all of your activities and we're going to make sure that we can hide things more effectively. That's essentially what he says. He's not necessarily concerned that they're breaking the law. And they do this. So he introduces uh, a program where German officers officially resign from the Reichswehr before they they end up in Russia. uh, They're given Russian language training by foreign ministry staff. There are all these new elements that are incorporated essentially to make it slightly less uh, illegal if it's discovered and also to conceal parts of the program that are particularly uh, unseemly in the public eye. Streisand essentially, eventually uh, endorses the expansion of cooperation. The Soviets agree. And in 1928, essentially everything uh, will grow even faster. More bases are set up, more facilities operating, more men sent uh, to the Soviet Union. So there are these hiccups. But by 1928, it's a pretty uh, well, well-oiled machine once the German military and the German government get on the same page. And of course, this this does have some odd uh, effects when it comes to Hitler rise to power. So first of all, the German military became adept at working through illegal channels, back channels, uh, dealing with politicians who were violating the law. Uh, clearly this played some relationship uh, with their later relationship with Hitler. And in addition, we see the Weimar Republic as uh, essentially being stage managed to some degree. And uh, the the fact that these scandals keep reoccurring and didn't really lead to a change in policy, certainly. Uh, Probably discredited the republic in in the eyes of some who were its most loyal supporters, um, and Hitler, of course, he he knew about a lot of the goings on. He had friends in the military from his own service, uh, and he would get engaged in a variety of ways, uh, and even write about it a little bit in the late 1920s as well.
1: Yeah, there seems. Um, I'm trying to remember now. I, I, you can correct me if I'm if I'm wrong, but it also seemed like there was you know, at least a- outwardly opposition to Hitler initially and the the National Socialists in the late Weimar Republic. I mean, I know Hindenburg was not really a fan. And it seems like even in the military, uh, in the Reichswehr, there was not enthusiasm for the National Socialist cause. And as you mentioned, most of the officers are aristocrats who might not have been totally aligned with with the Nazi regime. But one quote that you use in the book, which struck out to me, was that Werner von Blomberg, who becomes Hitler's chief ally in the Reichswar, he says that he the time that he spent in the Soviet Union made him a National Socialist. His exposure to the Soviet regime and Soviet people and culture, and I'm sure there's also racial prejudices with you know Slavic people versus Teutonic, but that but that caused him to go into the uh, join the National Socialist fold. Was that the case for a lot of the, the military's eventual uh, conversion over, or at least alignment with the Nazi party? Did that contact basically create you know, a Nazi-leaning Reichswar?
0: I I think it did have a significant impact on, on shaping attitudes towards Nazism. So again, remember, the, the officer corps is very small. It's 4,000 men at this juncture. It's limited by the Allies. And the, the army is one of the few institutions that probably could have stopped Hitler. And in fact, there were two major coups contemplated in 34 and 38. So there was a real possibility that if, if the Reichswehr was a little less uh, sympathetic to Nazism and to Hitler, Hitler would not have been able to do uh, the horrific things he did. So I think it's really significant. So what I found, and, and in fact, this draws a lot from Soviet intelligence documents, which are, I, I was really happy to find, where essentially they were monitoring many of the officers who are coming to live in the USSR. I mean, everything from their gambling habits, their uh, fraternization with local women, their reading habits, the, everything. They're, they're essentially monitoring all of these things. They identify essentially two schools. You've got your old aristocrats who are nationalists, but don't like not Nazism. Wilhelm Gruner, who's, who will take over eventually as the, the minister of defense. He's kind of the, the leader of that faction. Doesn't like Hitler. In fact, will quite bravely try to oppose him in 1932. That's the, Those are the older officers. The younger officers tend to be quite sympathetic to Nazism. They think that the old nationalists have really failed to revive German power, that they're not fighting hard enough to eliminate Versailles, and they think Hitler is the one who's going to do that. Now, the reason that, that the Soviet story here matters so much is because both schools of thought end up becoming more sympathetic to Nazism the more time they spend in the USSR. So Blomberg, who is more of this kind of this older aristocratic type officer, becomes quite sympathetic to Nazism because he's going on these tours of Soviet factories and visiting Red Army facilities, and Stalin had been pouring money into the Red Army starting in 1929. And he says, wow, look at what a totalitarian government can do when it comes to rearmament. This is what we need in Germany. And so he essentially says, we need to borrow the good parts of the Soviet model for, for home. And he thinks Hitler is the one to do that. So there are a number of senior officers who think this way, that essentially the kind of modernization project ongoing in the Soviet Union, that's great, and it needs to be done at home. For the junior officers who are living in the Soviet Union, the experience is a little bit different. So they are living at there are three main bases operating between 1929 and 1933, mostly in southern Russia. And as the Soviet Union embarks on collectivization and the confiscation of agricultural lands, all three bases are in the famine zone. That is essentially created by by Soviet agricultural policies. So I read these diary accounts or these mem- these events that are t- transpiring in, in Soviet intelligence documents where there are starving people climbing over the barbed wire fences. The base is trying to get food. We're being sh- you know shot off the fences. And for these junior officers, some of whom are only 18 or 19 years old, it's a pretty traumatic experience. And they talk about this quite a bit. And the impression that I get is that a lot of these junior officers come back and they say, communism is horrible. Uh, we will essentially support any movement that, that fights against, against communism. And they may have become quite sympathetic to Russians uh, culturally. A lot of them end up speaking Russian or learning Russian, but they, they detest Stalin and Stalinism. And so we see them increasingly becoming radicalized. And some of them like uh, Monstein, like Keitel, they will rise very quickly in the ranks of, of uh, the Nazi military machine and by the time the war begins uh, with the Soviet Union, they're saying, kill all commissars, commit any atrocity you want. Essentially, it's all justified because communism, we saw what communism looks like, and it's it's this horrific thing. So you see radicalization on both sides. And I think this is one reason Hitler was able to stay in power in in, in the early
1: years of his, his reign. If contact with the Soviet Union made germans more re- german officers more reactionary or made them radicalized as you as you said what was the relationship like the other way you know because one would imagine that rather than making the soviet officers increasingly you know uh, zealous for the cause that contact with the german officers made them less sympathetic to the regime they were living under you know, kind of like the, uh, you know, like in the 80s when there's we're going to carpet bomb them with blue jeans and music and they're going to see how we live and they're going to just abandon us. Was Stalin worried about that where the Red Army chiefs worried that contact with the Germans was going to make the army less sympathetic to the Soviet regime?
0: Yes, this is it. you've you've hit the the crux of it here. Stalin is very concerned that this this trend goes both ways. if If German officers are being uh, turned into reactionaries against communism, he's fearful that much the same will happen. and And part of this is that he's sending so many of the Red Army's senior commanders to study in Germany, sometimes for years on end. So to give you some sense here, by nineteen thirty seven the Soviet Union uh, had dispatched to Germany to live in Germany at various times, two of the country's five marshals, the senior rank. The head of the Soviet Air Force, the head of all Soviet military education, the head of civ- civil defense, the head of the, all of the main military academies, the director of naval construction, the commander of most of the various military districts, uh, as well as the majority of uh, corps and or, uh, quite a few, at least, of the corps and division commanders—a It's a little harder to calculate. So essentially, the elite of the Red Army had a lot spent a lot of time in Germany, and there are these articles that periodically appear, particularly in French and German newspapers, where. It's unclear if he, whether these are are true or not but essentially where so uh, anonymous soviet officers say we're ready to overthrow stalinism we've been friends with the germans they've they've taught us we're, we're the military is ready to step forward and of course stalin is reading these uh presumably and is very concerned about this uh, and the the key case perhaps is mikhail Tukhachevsky. so this guy he had been the this young he kind of a rock star figure for uh for german military officers he'd commanded uh, much of the Soviet war effort against Poland and done quite well, even though the soviets hadn't hadn't won that war. So he comes to Germany on these troop tours, and President Hindenburg wants to meet him. He's getting, you know, just these uh, this f- f- incredible welcome. And even Soviet officers think that he's not a particularly dedicated communist. He's an aristocrat by background. he's he's He looks down on a lot of the revolutionaries around him. And so in fact, in 1936, he will be arrested on the grounds that he was conspiring with the German military to overthrow the Soviet state. Uh, and this then leads to this incredibly uh, violent purge of much of the, the senior Soviet military. And I, I argue that this is in large part on the grounds that Stalin was concerned that they'd become contaminated by spending all this time with, with the German military.
1: How did that effect, did that have a direct effect on the Soviet performance in 1941? Were they less prepared to receive Hitler's uh, thrust because they had purged so much of the leadership, potentially because they were afraid that they had become too German?
0: Absolutely. Oh my goodness. The the effect is is devastating. So there are about 25,000 officers who are either removed or shot. This is essentially almost everybody who'd gone through professional military education for any length of time. So much of the Red Army is, uh, in in the words of another historian, essentially civilian in, in attitude and background when the war begins. And this is compounded by the fact that the Soviet military expands very rapidly in the last few years before the war from about 1.5 to 5 million people. So you have, you know, 40% of the officer positions in the Air Force are vacant. You've got about over half of Red Army army commanders with essentially no military uh, or professional training. And on top of it, a lot of these officers who'd been purged, they knew the German playbook. They'd been training alongside the Germans. They spoke German. So on top of the fact that they were often much more skilled than the people who spots uh, or who would replace them, they knew what was coming to a much greater degree. And, and in fact, you can see this in, in Soviet doctrine. So Tukhachevsky had written a military uh, manual that would be uh, essentially, it would give some sense of how the Germans were going to fight. It clearly understood German doctrine. That manual was suppressed after Tukhachevsky was shot. It disappeared. So essentially they had a lot of the German playbook and they had people who knew how to respond to it and they all disappeared. Uh, not to say the Red Army would have done, you know, amazingly uh, in, with, if they had survived, but they certainly would have performed much better, I would argue, than in fact they did.
1: Going back to the early 30s, when Hitler comes to power, Hitler is, is obviously very he's virulently anti-communist and you know, as you point out in the book you know in mein Kampf he explicitly calls for the destruction of the Soviet Union, among other things is is that is the ideological motivation why he eventually repudiates the treaty or did he feel like he had extracted enough the German people had extracted enough by the time he becomes chancellor and into the mid 1930s? Or was there some friction between he and Stalin? What caused him to kind of go back on this, the seemingly profitable alliance?
0: Yeah, he 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 lays out his blueprint. He's certainly hostile to, to communism in, in every way, shape and form. He writes in, in his second book, which was not published, that this partnership with the Soviets is a disaster and it needs to be repudiated immediately. It was in 1928. But when he gets to power, and I was surprised about this a bit when I got into the archives and was reading secondary literature, he doesn't immediately break it off. In fact, he gives a few speeches that are vaguely, you know, suggest some sort of rapprochement or uh, relationship can continue. And so for about nine months, the relationship does continue. It's broken off primarily because Hitler thinks it's really inefficient to try to keep training officers a thousand miles away in the Soviet Union. He essentially is pretty confident the British and French won't do anything to stop him if he starts relocating these training facilities and maybe even building some weapon systems in violation of Versailles. And so he just moves these bases back and begins op- having them operate, in fact, on German soil. And so they, they begin re- relocating in the fall of 1933. It's not clear that he is going to uh, immediately try to sever the relationship in its entirety. And there are parts of it that continue on the economic side, really through 35. The problem is that the relationship depended on uh, German military expertise and technology going eastward. And Hitler was so dedicated to breakneck rearmament that essentially he had no surplus to sell and no interest in in selling it to the Soviets. So the relationship does unravel and, of course, becomes very hostile as Hitler embraces some of his own ideological uh, viewpoints more publicly. But for a while, it's not clear the relationship will entirely fall apart, really until uh, a couple years in.
1: What was Stalin's reaction to this? You know, did, was Stalin hopeful that the noises Hitler was making publicly when he first came to power seemed like he was going to continue or was he Stalin, like, you know, if, if you know, you know, the listeners who might know something about, you know, the, the negotiations that were going on right before the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor and mm-hmm. the decision to eventually kind of go with the, uh, you know, you know, the, the non-aggression pact with the Germans would know that he seems to be kind of trying to play all sides at all mm-hmm. times. Did Hitler ascendancy cause him to maybe more, uh, more vehemently court the, the British, you know, or the French, or, you know, did he just, kind of, or was he more inner focused on trying to mitigate the perceived negative effect of German contact with the, with the red army?
0: I, I think you're exactly right that his his primary means of responding to Hitler and the breaking of the relationship is to essentially try to play all sides simultaneously. So the the conventional narrative is often that essentially Hitler comes to power, Stalin recognized he was a bad guy and immediately started working on building collective security, an alliance to contain Hitler. The evidence suggests that the Soviets were in fact furious that Hitler had broken off the relationship. They do some things in the final phases, uh, when when the facilities are winding down, like shutting off all train traffic or preventing food from arriving at these bases. They there's this kind of petty moment where a Soviet officer forbades all the Germans from bathing in a river when it hits about 110 <laughs> degrees at the base as the relationship's falling apart and he says it's because you guys are being so nasty and uh you're being anti-communist. I mean so you see all these kind of these these S- signals being sent that the relationship can continue if you're willing to let it continue, and you should, in part because I think the Soviets had developed a degree of dependence on German experts and officers. So once once it's clear the relationship is falling apart, Stalin does authorize uh, Maxim Litvinov, who is uh, his commissar of foreign affairs, to begin working on improving relations with the British and French, entering the League of Nations, building this collective security apparatus. But at the same time, he doesn't give up on, on a partnership with Hitler. Uh, from what I've seen, he essentially has people quietly, either diplomats or military personnel, reach out to the Germans repeatedly in 34, 35, 36, 38, always about trying to renew the Rapallo relationship, resume economic, political, and, and military cooperation. So it's not like he becomes a devout, you know, anti, anti-Nazi at this moment. And in fact, from what I can tell, his His lens for viewing all of this is primarily an ideological one. he's He's a communist uh, and a, and a true a true believer in some respects. And he thinks essentially that the capitalist world is 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 fragmented into two blocks: the revisionist powers who want who don't have access to markets and want them, Germany, Italy, and Japan, and the status quo powers, Great Britain and France, who are trying to prevent them from accessing those markets. For him, his only goal is to prevent those two blocks from coming together and forming an alliance against the Soviet Union. And in fact, he seems to view London as the greater threat than Berlin for much of the 1930s. Uh, at, at different moments, so I think his real goal is is to prevent capitalist encirclement and work with whoever is willing to work with him, uh, essentially to prevent a war against the USSR.
1: Now, you we alluded to this a little earlier the the arms race that is facilitate that you argue is facilitated by the Rapallo arrangement. And there's a great part, the chapter where you talk about the technological window, and Hitler kind of sits down his top military advisors and kind of lays out exactly why they need to strike now and why they need to start uh, uh, being more aggressive on this stage. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because that also seemed quite fascinating that even after this... 12 year or so really longer relationship with the Soviets. And they've developed all this new weapons technology and weapons systems that even the, the top German military brass needs to be, needs to have Hitler kind of sit them down and go, nope, we're, this is what we're doing. This is where we're going. You know, wh- why was the disconnect there? Why did Hitler see this bounty as, uh, you know, that he could capitalize on it and the military leadership really wasn't uh, there with him?
0: There, there is some irony in this. So Zeke kept talking about the destruction of Poland. This was one of his fantasies. And when Hitler says, OK, we're going to rapidly rearm and, and try to retake these territories lost under Versailles, the German military is somewhat taken aback. And the pace that Hitler pushes in particular very much frightens the senior brass, particularly Blomberg, who's really the dominant military figure until 38. They'd already begun violating Versailles, not only with technology, but they'd expanded the German military. It's about 147,000 before Hitler came to power. So there's some continuity. But Hitler essentially, within a month of coming to power, he sits down with his military and economic planners and said, rearmament is the only thing that matters. Everything needs to be sacrificed for rearmament. Our currency reserves, our stocks of raw materials, everything. And we see this very rapid expansion of, of uh, the, the Army, Navy, and, and Air Force, the reconstituted Air Force, over the next five, six years. The It's important to keep in mind all the work that had been done in the Soviet Union. This was about building prototypes. They weren't mass producing most of these aircraft or tanks. It was about developing engineering expertise, developing tactics, getting to know the technology. But very few of the designs that were tested or developed there would actually be mass produced. What essentially happened is Hitler came to power, began rapidly increasing military spending from about 1% to 10% of national income over his first two years in power. And a lot of that money went into mass producing kind of the next generation uh, derived from these prototypes that have been tested in the USSR. Now, at this in this moment in, in history, it took about four to six years to develop a new tank or aircraft design from scratch. You essentially, you issue specifications. We want a plane that goes this fast, does this or that. It takes about four to six years to build a prototype, to test it, to get it into mass production, to speed up the mass production so where it's, well, quite a few are rolling off the assembly lines. That process really couldn't be sped up even by massive investments of of capital. So Hitler in 1933 begins pouring money into these research and development programs. Most of those tanks and planes are going to hit mass production really in between 37 and 39, maybe a little bit later. So this is the moment when all of these new vehicles and aircraft start rolling off the assembly lines. And because of Versailles, this is essentially everything that Germany's producing is new. It's not like they have other stuff. Uh, the, the Allies had prevented them from doing that. Hitler recognizes this. and in, in 37 and 38, he repeatedly tells his military planners and advisors, essentially, we now have all this modern equipment. We have a significant technological advantage over our adversaries who have a mix of obsolete and new equipment. And the moment is coming to strike because our equipment will eventually become obsolete eventually the British and French will build better stuff than us. And we have to strike before it's too late. And he argues at various times that this window is going to close by 42, by 43. So essentially he wants to achieve his foreign policy goals before, before that window closes. And I think this drives some of the speed of his decision-making in rushing into war in 1939. This calculation that right now we have an advantage that that is going to fade over time.
1: 1939 is also the year in which the Nazis and Soviets formally renew their relationship with the signing of the Molotov-Ribbentrop Non-Aggression Pact. What occasioned this change of heart? Was it just strategic expediency, um, you know, or was there some hope that a renewed relationship might also bring renewed economic and technological benefits? Uh, and was the desire mutual, you know, or was one side more enthused uh, about the prospects than the other?
0: Well, you know, by 1938, they've been in, in Stalin's word, pouring buckets of crap over each other's heads in propaganda terms for several years. There, there's a great deal of hostility. Uh, the relationships had never been worse. But then a series of things happen that will change, change the political landscape. So one is that the Munich conference takes place The British and French don't invite the Soviets. There are a number of reasons for this. Uh, In part, anti communism, in part, the sense that the purges had eliminated the ability of the Soviet Union to exercise power in Europe. Stalin's very much ticked about this. And in fact, almost immediately afterwards, he's going to begin expanding contacts with Germany. And in December of 1938, he's going to have diplomats reach out about a new and much enlarged trade agreement with the Germans. And in, in one of the documents that I found, which I think is quite significant, is that in the process of those early trade negotiations, the, the Soviet uh, Ministry of Defense provides this incredible list of weapons that they want to purchase from the Germans, something like 117 different weapon systems, including entire tank and aircraft prototypes. Now, there's no way if the Germans thought that they might be fighting the Soviets in the near future, they'd agree to these terms. The only way that some kind of trade agreement like that could happen as if there's a broad political understanding that takes place. So clearly, uh, from what I've seen, by December or January, Stalin is interested in a possible rapprochement with the Germans. Hitler's not so sure though. His anti-communism blinds him to the the perhaps opportunities uh, as his diplomats would suggest that lie to the East. It's only when the British and French issue the guarantee to Poland in the spring of 1939 in March where they basically say we're not going to allow Hitler to do to Poland what he's just done to Czechoslovakia. When that happens, Hitler says, "Okay." Uh, he had been trying to get a partnership with the Poles. The Poles weren't interested. At that point, he reorients. He's given new advice by Hermann Göring, who's really his is kind of second in command at this juncture. Who says, "What about a deal with the Soviets?" And by April, Hitler has come around to this idea. That's when we see surreptitious talking starting. Everybody's dancing around it because they obviously don't trust each other. In fact, they revile each other's political views, but they begin to quietly talk. And by the summer of 1939, the early summer, it's pretty clear that something is transpiring behind the scenes. An economic negotiation is drawing increasingly close to being signed. And there are beginnings of talks about political rapprochement. My impression from the documents is that Stalin is uh, essentially trying to drive up the price of a bargain, but by May of 1939 he is fairly committed to the German option well hitler as his his need to go to war with poland before he views his opportunity as having disappeared uh, he becomes more and more desperate for a deal and is willing to sacrifice more and more for this partnership and that leads of course to uh, to august 1939 to ribbentrop flying to moscow the the late night talks negotiations a treaty being signed and then uh, plenty of of celebratory drinking thereafter that marked the partition of poland and then the return of war to
1: Europe. Before we get to the final two questions we ask all our guests, I want to finish our conversation of the book by returning to the idea of the community of fate. Nothing we've spoken about or that is included in the narrative is suggestive of a, a community as we would define it today. And in the spring of 1941, as we all know, the German-Soviet community descends into outright fratricide. The Eastern Front of the Second World War, as we mentioned before, is probably one of the worst places in history one could ever find oneself, uh, with atrocities being committed on both sides. Is the visceral, unbridled animus we see unleashed on the Eastern Front the legacy of the Rapallo era, or is it simply a symptom of modern industrial warfare more generally?
0: I think that when Ambassador uh, Brockdorf Ransau wrote, wrote that that phrase what he had in mind was almost that the two states were handcuffed together for for good or evil German relations and uh, the German relationship with Russia was going to determine the fate of Europe in some way shape or form I think it had the implication perhaps that they should work together as Ransau thought but uh, it, it was something almost bigger than that it was this idea that what uh, their relationship would in fact uh, shape much of the 20th century. And he was right to a degree that the First World War, the Russian Revolution, the Second World War, all of these events were products in some way, shape or form of the, of the Russian-German relationship. So I think that was a, a key part of it. And in terms of the conduct on the Eastern Front, much of this is obviously driven by, by Nazi ideology uh, and, and the horrors that are committed behind the lines as, as German forces advance. But what I think is is different when we compare with the First World War is that the German military is an active and quite willing participant in many instances with these atrocities. Uh, and, and much of this, I think, is driven by the experience of, of living in the USSR, the fact that they'd seen collectivization, the horrors of the famines that had happened between 1931 and 33 up close. There was this sense that this was a regime that you, know, you, you needed to destroy. And in addition, keep in mind that the purges had killed all of these officers who they'd studied alongside. I, I found documents suggesting that at the, at the, uh, the tank facility, comma the, the purges had gone as far down as the janitorial staff, the waitresses in the mess hall. I mean, anybody who'd gotten to know the Germans disappeared. Uh, all the German ex-girlfriends disappeared in the 30s. Um, that's, I've actually seen some of the documents where they finally get released in the 40s, late 40s after the war. Because they'd gone on a few dates with German officers in the twenties, uh, Germans were maintaining some correspondence in some instances when they could with the Russian counterparts, and everybody they knew disappeared. Clearly, this also uh, played a motivating factor in the the horrible atrocities that they would sign off on or even uh, perpetrate themselves. And there is kind of a flip side too. So one of the characters that I that I mentioned in the book, he ah, uh, he comes to really love Russia and Russian culture and literature. is uh, quite Quite interested in this, and he has a nervous breakdown when he witnesses members of his unit, uh, rather horrifically, locking a bunch of women and children in a church and setting it on fire. In the first few months of the war, he has a nervous breakdown and essentially spends the rest of the war managing motor pools in Germany because uh, this is a country he'd come to love. So you see both sides, but I think, sadly and tragically, the people who are making the decisions, uh, including parts of you know parts of the Holocaust, are people who've become, as you noted reactionary in the course of their experience in the USSR.
1: So we have two final questions. Ian, you've been very generous with our time. These two questions are a little bit more uh, lighthearted. So now that Faustian Bargain has gone to press, what what new project is on the horizon for you?
0: I've got a couple of different books uh, in the works. This one took 11 years with some, some gaps between inception and, and publication. So I've got two that are fairly... Uh, well along. Uh, But the next one is called War on the Wintry Sea, Submariners, Spies, and Revolutionaries on the Baltic, 1914 to 1920. Essentially, this is the story of uh, at the start of the First World War, the British sent a bunch of submarines to assist the Russians. They took on Russian officers and fought together uh, against the Germans and had a fairly significant role on the overall naval war. And then these units got trapped in Russia as the revolution began they become involved in espionage, efforts to overthrow uh, the, the Bolsheviks, uh, often fight, even fighting alongside the Germans in some instances in the Baltic states in the chaos that follows the October Revolution. And it's the story of essentially their their role, their experiences, and, and uh, how in some instances they fought their way out of Russia and, and the overall result for European and world history.
1: Interesting. I did not know about that. Uh, our last question is, is there anything you are currently reading, listening to, or watching that our audience might want to check out?
0: Sure. Yeah. Well, if, if you find the story interesting, uh, Babylon Berlin will likely be of interest, uh, to, to many, many listeners right now, there's been a really great, uh, kind of surge of publications around the anniversary of a lot of the dates that I've mentioned in the course of this project. So right now I'm reading, uh, Ben Hetz, the Nazi menace, Hitler, Churchill, Stalin, and the road to war. Which covers the, the the latter period of my book, but from a very different perspective, looking essentially at this uh, unfolding process of appeasement and trying to understand Hitler for in in Washington, in Moscow, in London. Uh, and I'm I'm really enjoying that. I'd recommend
1: it. Cool, great. Well, Ian, thank you again for joining me today. It was a pleasure.
0: Uh, thank you very much for having me. Enjoyed it.
1: And to all our listeners, this is Scott Lipkowitz on behalf of New Books in Military History.